is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Many Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with two of our favorite guests, Ken McLeod and Jim Wilson, speaking from our respective bunkers of the California Shelter-in-Place Order We will touch upon the relevance of spiritual practice in an age of social distancing, as well as the possibility and freedom inherent in moving discourse beyond mere critique and contradiction. After learning Tibetan, Ken McLeod translated for his principal teacher, Kalu Rinpoche, and helped to develop Rinpoche's centers in North America and Europe. In 1985, Kalu Rinpoche authorized Ken to teach and placed him in charge of his Los Angeles center. Faced with the challenges of teaching in a major metropolis, he began exploring different methods and formats for working with students. He moved away from both the teacher-center model and the minister-church model and developed a a consultant-client model. Ken is the founder and director of unfetteredmind.org. He is the author of Wake Up to Your Life, Discovering the Buddhist Path of Attention, The Great Path of Awakening, An Arrow to the Heart, Reflections on Silver River, and his most recent book, A Trackless Path. Jim Wilson was a monk and abbot under the direction of his teacher, Sun San, a Korean Chogye sect Zen master. He served as a Buddhist prison chaplain, studied Western philosophy, co-founded Many Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, conducts a website dedicated to syllabic form haiku, and has penned and published many books of poetry. In recent years, his spiritual practice has centered on the Quaker Christian tradition, In addition to his many poetry volumes, he has published several books on spiritual matters, including On Trusting the Heart, a commentary on a famous poem by the third Zen patriarch, and an annotated edition of A Guide to True Peace. Jim Wilson and Ken McLeod, welcome to The Mystical Positivist. Great to be here again. So these are unusual times. This is the first time that we are doing a Zoom conversation with uh, all of us together because we are sheltered in place during the coronavirus um, outbreak. And so Zoom is becoming a very popular medium for conversation across the country. But I thought, you know, it's it's an interesting question that has come up in a number of uh, conversations we've had with people. And uh, particularly people who are engaged in spiritual work, in the midst of anxiety and in the midst of uh, a tendency to panic, uh, in the face of people hoarding toilet paper and uh, food and things in general, uh, and a growing frustration with the governmental response, a question continues to come up is what is uh, what what is the role of spiritual practice? What does that even mean in this context? And how, how do we use the current circumstances as a way of strengthening our practice? If that question even makes sense. 
or even perhaps inviting people to explore spiritual practice formally for a first time. Well, where do you want to start with that? There's so many places. Yeah, I, I think the uh, an interesting thing for me this uh, last couple of weeks was just look at, getting a better look at anxiety in myself and my response to the anxiety and coming to a place of remembering what my core practice teaches me, which is that simply placing attention on the arising of the phenomenon is in itself a starting point to return my attention to my body and to pull it back from the ramifications of my mind is another ally in moving through a natural flow of anxious energy, but allowing it to arise and pass as opposed to holding on to it and making it the cause of a production of a whole mental narrative about uh, what's going on in the world. So that, that's, that's probably the first place, for, you know, as a personal response, I've found that my practice is instrumental now in allowing me to be present to what's happening. Well, <clears throat> implicit uh, in what you say, and you made it explicit towards the end. Uh, I think the first principle is that in spiritual practice, at least the way you seem to understand it and the way I understand it, and I'd like to hear from Jim on this as well, is the first thing is it involves no denial of what is actually going on. Right. Uh, because you can't be present in what's happening if you pretend that something else is happening. Right. Yeah. It seems clear, but it's uh, not necessarily an easy thing to do, obviously. Well, in something like this, no, it isn't easy at all. Uh, I think all of us are, with possible exception of Stuart, are in, uh, high, uh, in a high-risk group, not necessarily the highest risk. Uh, I was talking with Jeremy, our friend Stuart, mm -hmm. morning, and uh, he has, he's had a liver transplant, so he's in a much higher risk category. Mm. Wow. Us. And uh, so, uh, and this involves, uh, but accepting the fact that we are in high-risk categories, Part of being present in what is happening is we move into a much more intimate relationship with our mortality. Uh, and that's something that uh, a lot of people find very difficult. Uh, including, I would say, I'm quite surprised that there are two Buddhist teachers I know, both capable, both very decent individuals, but in the, each in their own way, their practice has not prepared them for mortality, which I found absolutely astonishing given my own training, but it's involved, uh, it's related to what they chose to emphasize in their practice. Jim, your thoughts? Well, I, um, what's come to my mind is the particular configuration of this crisis and uh, um, the, the impact of social distancing and um, it's, it is huge for people, you know, like, and spiritual, there are spiritual traditions that have developed resources which are applicable in this context, you know, like, and I'm, I'm 
thinking specifically of hermit traditions, you know, like or um, or or even traditions that aren't necessarily hermit but have extensive experience with solitary retreats or that kind of thing. And during this time, I've kind of relied on that, you know, like um, you know, I've leaned on uh, the kind of structure that they developed. Um, and uh, applied it to this situation. It's it's not difficult for me because I've used it for many many years, like on retreats. Or so could you could you give a couple of examples of that? Well, yeah, I can give an example. It's like um, hermits in the uh, Orthodox small O Orthodox Christian traditions are uh, um, their practice centers around. Um, hours of practice, Matin, Lodge, Prime, Terrace, Sex, Known, Vespers, Compline. And at each of those times, they enter into some kind of practice, depending on their specific tradition. You know, like um, all of them, for example, read the Psalms, you know, like uh, on, a, on a schedule, you know, like and, um, some of them enter into contemplation on a daily basis. And uh, so, you can use that kind of structure and apply it to your own life, you know, like in your own spiritual background. Um, and it, I actually think looked at from that perspective, it could be a tremendous opportunity for some people. Um, I, I wanted to add a, a little thing about uh, <laughs> people hoarding, you know, like in the, in the kind of, uh, that kind of response. I found myself quite sympathetic to that reaction because I, I understand that it's an expression of fear and it may be, I mean, some of the things that people are hoarding are um, a little bit comic, you know, like, uh, but, but I'm, what they're displaying is their emotional reaction to the situation, you know, like, and so I, I found myself, I thought it was kind of poignant, you know, like, and, um, I, I've resisted when uh, my own sort of uh, tendency to look down on that reaction or to configure it in a disparaging or, you know, like, um, I, I've seen a lot of people post things like, aren't they stupid? You know, can't they, can't they get their act together? And I'm saying, well, no, actually, they can't get their act together. That's, that's what's being that's what's being shown you know like and um i i'm not coming to any great conclusion there but um i think condemning people who react that way no matter how mildly or looking down on them or disparaging them uh, actually adds difficulty to the situation well i think you're you're you've cycled back to ken's point about mortality i think right. that's 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 clearly the foundational motivation there for folks, um, and um, it's almost like a like a nesting impulse. Yeah, I, I think, think. A, a nesting impulse. I think is a good way to describe it. You know, I yeah, I, I mean, I, I see this these kinds of behaviors as forms of attempting to control, right? Attemp attempting to have some sort of control over your environment in a face of uh, something that's invisible and uncertain and scary. But I also locate the same behavior in 
sending out internet links and, uh, you know, following the various narratives of uh, your favorite political pundit or uh, your favorite doctor. Uh, and there's a lot of that going on where people are trying to use, gain control of the situation in their minds by looking to an expert or looking to someone who has an opinion that resonates emotionally with what one wants to be the case. And it's just very, very interesting because for me, I see, and when I engage in those behaviors, that's taking me away from this point that Ken was describing earlier, which is being present to what is. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. It's not that I'm approving of that behavior. It's just that my own reaction is a kind of sadness that that, 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 that yeah. is the choice yeah. that so many people have taken. Um, in I see it as an occasion to, I call it, um, turn towards eternity, mm. uh, you know, like that. And uh, I, I think that I think that's difficult for people to do. You know, like, yeah, and I want to be clear that uh, uh, in my descriptions, I was uh, basing that off of myself. I mean, I. I I don't totally. really, I don't really uh, judge the person hoarding toilet paper because the same impulse comes up in me. Absolutely, I, yeah. I got, I got that. Yeah, yeah, um, and, and it, it comes up in me too, you know, like uh, so. But one of the benefits of spiritual practice is that you can actually observe that arising without succumbing to it. Yeah. Well. I, for myself, I think this plays into Stuart reporting about anxiety. My principle, what I, what I find going on in me is that I find the whole process, this whole situation disorienting. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason I find it disorienting is the, the information is, uh, some information is reliable, but uh, a lot of it is not. And a lot of it is changing pretty well on a day-to-day -day basis um, and uh, and at the same time there are actual threats to one's well-being and to uh, society's well-being as was implicit in Jim's comments about the impact of social isolation on the society as a whole and I, I, last week I prepared the, my April newsletter and in, in the introduction I said this is the first time in my life that I, uh, I, I find my thoughts going back to my parents uh, who uh, uh, upon their entry into the Second World War when everything went completely out of control and life was changed hugely by the demands of the war effort in Britain. And I, I think this is the first time that I have any inkling of what they they actually went through in terms of the, the uncertainty, uh, not knowing what was going to happen, rapidly changing situations, and often not in very good ways, and so forth and so forth. Uh, and I think, by and large, except uh, this is the first time in over a hundred years that uh, American society. Uh, you know, as a whole, uh, has had to uh, face something like this, uh, and uh, in a certain sense, we're out of practice. 
I've heard several people make that point. That, um, for example, a good contrast is South Korea. And one of the reasons they responded um, efficiently, is that I think that's the right word. Uh, effectively. Effectively, is they had been through the swine flu um, had affected them very strongly. And uh, there were some other... Um, SARS. SARS and SARS had uh, spread to Korea, and they had taken that lesson and put in place uh, social uh, structures because they assumed that that situation would arise again. But the United States wasn't really affected by SARS and wasn't really affected by um, those other, um, you know, uh, America didn't have an Ebola outbreak. It came close, I understand, but it didn't actually have it. So you're right. Uh, America doesn't doesn't have a history that it can lean on. Well, I want to I want to uh, add to that. I was listening to a uh, to a radio interview with Max Brooks, the son of Mel Brooks, who um, is apparently quite the expert on emergency preparedness in the United States and the various organs of the United States government. And he made a couple of comments uh, that I think are relevant here. Uh, in addition to the point you made, Jim, about South Korea being essentially prepared by their experience with earlier, lesser pandemics, if you will, or epidemics, um, he also made the point that South Korea and Taiwan and Israel are states where the population is more or less endemically uh, feels threatened. Under siege. Under siege. And that their responses seem to be, because South Korea has, is still at, at war officially. Taiwan is threatened by um, China. Um, Israel, of course, similar sort of situation, and that their responses, the mobilization that those that those societies offer, um, has been have been different than what we than what we see in the United States, where uh, uh, Brooks went on to point out that in, during the Cold War, the United States government had many many measures in place, including stockpiling the sort of things like personal protective equipment that is now uh, so so dearly missed in the United States. Um, they had all kinds of uh, measures to support the population in the case of nuclear war. After the end of the Cold War, it was decided that that's just too expensive to maintain. And so, um, so we don't have the, ben the benefit of that. So we're talking about two things here, the physical, thing, the physical um, preparation, but also the sort of mental siege um, uh, climate. And, um, and then to, to that, in, in the case of the United States government, you know, as we as we speak, the United States now has more um, cases of uh, coronavirus 
um, COVID-19 than any other country in the world. And um, according to Brooks, the people who still have been doing emergency preparedness measures, gaming of, of what, what can happen and how to respond, have been gnashing their teeth in intense frustration while the United States government completely has fumbled um, the response. So, so these things have, um, I mean, there's multiple, multiple ways in which um, the societal response has been affected by conditions like the siege mentality and or uh, the absence of, uh, of a siege mentality that you could say that the Cold War was uh, um, provided for the United States previously. And I think that's, I think it's interesting. Brooks was of the opinion that, that the United States is very good at responding once there's a crisis. But before that, um, um, we're clueless with, like a chicken with its head cut off. But that's a comment that's been made about the United States by uh, quite a few people. It goes back to Winston Churchill, you know, like uh, uh, make that kind of observation about the United States. I, I was just thinking of Churchill, too, who said America is a country that can be absolutely counted on to do the right thing when all other possibilities have been <laughs> exhausted. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Well, go ahead. Okay. Well, I want to go back to Stuart's uh, original question. Uh, I'd like to explore it. Uh, and that is, I mean, this, we, we hear this, what is a spiritual response or a, re a religious response or whatever to this crisis? I want to examine that question itself. Because mm -hmm. I think there's a problem in that question. Uh, and I think, I'm, I'm, thinking off the top of my head here, I think the problem in that is that there's a utilitarian bias or prejudice work in that, within that question. Yeah, I can, I can certainly see that in that um, it, there's sort of the unsaid question of what good is this spiritual stuff <laughs> if it can't get you through this? But I mean, but well, it runs, it runs through even... It's, it's like saying, well, that's what, a spirit, this, that's what it should be doing. Well, I mean, but you, even uh, you, you yourself and recounting uh, some Buddhist practitioners who don't seem to have, <clears throat> uh, their practice doesn't seem to uh, support uh, the issues associated with the fear of mortality. Uh, yeah. There's a, there's an implicit utilitarian uh, well, consideration. I, actually, I would disagree there because if we go back to the founding of Buddhism, Buddha was, I mean, the myth of Buddha's life is he was confronted with old age illness and death. Yeah. And his, and out of that, the question arose for him, how can you live in such a world? Oh. So, so your, your, your critique, not critique's the wrong word, your observation is that it's puzzling that a Buddhist would suddenly, you know, have difficulty dealing with one of the aspects of like, uh, as I say, sickness and old age and death. Yeah, because these are the human condition, they're unavoidable, right. et cetera, et cetera. And this goes back to your first statement is that 
being present in what is, well, it means being present in the actual fact of the human condition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Jim, your thoughts? Um, well, it's interesting to me that um, what I've observed for a long time is that um, contemporary spiritual movements um, resist the idea of objective markers of the depth of their practice. So like, um, and uh, and and they resisted quite intensely. So that's what arose in my mind in response. Uh, Can you give an example, Jim, of what you mean? Well, uh, um, for example, there if a spiritual teacher does not measure, um, how do I put this? Um, because ultimate reality is beyond name and form, therefore. Um, you can't uh, judge my practice by any criteria. So if I get drunk or I take drugs or I do this or that and the other, then um, and you criticize that, then that is just um, um, from a, a smaller perspective. So what that does is it, it dissolves any hope of an ordinary person um, having some some place to stand on and saying this is this spiritual teacher is um, has some authenticity it would be like uh approaching a musician say a piano player and um and you want to take lessons from them and so you're listening you say well play something for me you know because what, what they're asking is you know like do you have the skills like and uh, and then the piano player is saying, well, my understanding of piano playing is, you know, beyond uh, name and form. You know, it transcends that. It's, you know, completely inaccessible to ordinary people. So I, I don't want to name you like particular people because that, to me, that takes the conversation in an unfruitful direction. But, uh, but perhaps... Perhaps that metaphor is helpful. So, yeah. well, I find what you're saying very interesting, Jim, because uh, I, I think I understand what you're pointing to, but I, I want to point out something else, is that uh, there are other objective markers which are very firmly in place, that is, uh, uh, which may or may not be relevant to actual spiritual practice. For instance, if you do not take care of your body, then you are not spiritual. Uh, and uh, or if you have certain lifestyles, then you, you know, there's a very very strong judgment about uh, those things, and those those are taken as markers of, of spiritual attainment. Uh, and uh, you have to be psychologically astute uh, or reasonably sophisticated to make it in today's world, virtually speaking, in the eyes of many many people. Uh, you know, in a way that certainly wasn't the case in the past. So I, I, I'm not sure that the markers aren't there. I think they 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 they're different, <laughs> and uh, I'm not <laughs> and uh, and 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 many people don't uh, don't know how to uh, 
I don't think I, I think many people don't know how to uh, how to tell whether someone has a spiritual practice or uh, is authentic spiritually in the same way that someone may not be able to tell whether a musician has any music music musical ability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Well, it's interesting because um, I mean you're 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 suggesting, Ken, I think that the ethical uh, rules that Jim is pointing to um, have become superseded by uh, success in the world. Is that is that a, a way to summarize what you do, the point you're making, Ken? I, I think that's expressing it a little crassly, but uh, but I, I, I mean I, that's I, that's me, baby. Clearly, <laughs> you're not spiritual. <laughs> This this may be too big a leap, but I think you'll know what I mean. Criteria for the vertical have been replaced by criteria of the horizontal. Yes, I okay. I, I would agree with that. that I mean, the, the that's a nice way to express yeah, it. Yeah, uh, the word that was coming up to me is all the markers are exoteric. You know? Yes, yes, that too. Yeah, and but it but it, there's a problem because uh, uh, it, we don't have serenity meters on our forehead. We don't have uh, uh, abiding peace uh, metrics. And the people who are, to Jim's point, if you don't know how to play the piano, you're not even really well equipped to uh, assess the skill of the potential teacher, particularly when we're talking about esoteric uh, uh, markers, as it were. And and, that, and that's, I mean, that, that's a problem we have all the time. I mean. I, I think there's no worse now than it ever was, I suspect, which is probably why, you know, there's often people who have high opinions of themselves who can set themselves up as authorities in these things and get away with it for a while. Well, I'm not sure that it's always been there. And I also think there's a very strong cultural component here. I'm reminded of an incident that involved my teacher. My teacher lived in the Darjeeling area of uh, India, which at that time, uh, late 60s and early 70s, was under quite strict control because of its proximity to uh, China. Uh, And so uh, to go there, you had to have special visas and so forth. And uh, Rinpoche's secretary would go into Darjeeling, which was about a 10-mile rather hazardous jeep ride on the crazy roads of India, uh, periodically to renew their residence certificates. But one time, uh, they insisted that Rinpoche himself come. They wanted to see him in person. Uh, And his secretary explained he's an old man, it's not good for him to travel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But they were adamant about it. So the secretary went back and got a good jeep and brought Rinpoche into the administrative office in Darjeeling. And the moment that Rinpoche walked in, the Indians recognized who he was and what he was. Even though it's Tibetan, and they 
didn't have a soft spot for Tibetans by any stretch of the imagination, but they recognized his spiritual quality immediately. Served him tea, never brought up anything about the certificates or the pass or anything like that. Hmm. And, uh, and apologized him profusely. And sent it back. Uh, it, it's something I, I, find, I, I think I would find very, very, I'd be very surprised to see something comparable happen in our culture. I understand what you're saying, and um, but I think you're pointing to two things here, as you implied in your first uh, before you started this, this anecdote about your teacher, which is that it's cultural, but it, <clears throat> excuse me, but there's something that that can transcend culture. I think you're saying yes. that people may may oh. not be able to cognize formally in their brains. They may not be able to express articulately why this person is different than than other people. Um, I think that's what what, what yes. you're pointing to. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't disagree with, with 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 that. I guess I guess the point I was making is that is that I don't think there's much of that around in the world in terms of the cultural side of things. There's not a lot of cultural. There are not a lot of cultural contexts that I'm aware of where um, where there would be any kind of deference to to spiritual authority. In fact, if anything, and um, the you know there's a, a, an acidic eating away at that sort of thing that's been going on for centuries in the West and continues to this day. So. Um, and the West is, you know, taking the Western culture is pre, is fairly substantially um, expanding its influence throughout the world, insofar as I can discern. So um, certainly there are stories of of just the sort of recognition that you point to in many traditions from all around the world, but but nowadays it's harder. I think it's harder to find. Well, I want to throw a question out to Jim here. Why has Western culture <laughs> eroded its relationship to the spiritual? I'm, I'm from, uh, I spent a lot of time on the history of how that has happened. And as we've had discussions about how I consider the 17th century to be kind of pivotal about... Uh, and I think, I think it would be interesting to reiterate that briefly. Well, um, my view is that in Europe, the, the Reformation injected into the culture certain views, attitudes, and procedures, which eventually, not immediately, and it wasn't their motive, you know, like, well, but which were corrosive in the way that Rob described. Uh, part of it, to, just to pick one example, is um, Protestant critique of Catholicism was based on a literal analysis of scripture so that they hammered the Catholic Church over, you're doing this, but it's not in the Bible. You're doing this, but cite scripture. You're doing this, but I can't find any justification in this. And what that, what that did was to separate the religion from tradition and from history. Like, and the, the, on that point. I'm sorry. Separating religion from tradition. 
and history. Yeah, could you expand on that a little bit? Well, what it means is that you use a, a logical apparatus. So, um, and incidentally, initially, this was extremely effective. You know, it was it was a very effective mode of attack. You know, like and um, and uh, and the response of the Catholic Church eventually in the 17th century was to get their act together and they became even more analytical than the Protestants. You know, they, you know, like, like, and so in a sense, there was this whole dramatic shift away from the allegorical, the the metaphorical, um, you know, like, Robin Stewart has showed me passages in Gurdjieff's writing where he actually talks about the shriveling of the ability to think allegorically in the West, you know, like as a historical phenomenon, and that that was a tragic loss. And I see that as being initiated in the um, in the 17th century, in particular. But the separation from history is one of the the main themes because. Initially, uh, Catholics responded, well, we've been doing this for centuries. We've been doing this for like a thousand years, you know, like, uh, or more. And so the Protestant response was, well, you've been wrong for a thousand years. That sounds awfully like what's happening today, doesn't it? Yes. And you see that, you know, like that really transformed how the West looked at tradition and uh, tradition was no longer a source of wisdom. It was something that we need to examine, critique, um, and uh, discard. And it's a source of delusion. It's a source of superstition. You know, like, and if you can't, the thing is, if you can't justify it rationally, you know, like, if you can't justify tradition rationally. Tradition wasn't, um, uh, up until the uh, Reformation, tradition wasn't justified through um, analysis and reason and logic. It was, it was, um, uh, part of it was mimic, you know, like mimicking the life of Jesus. You know, uh, part of it was uh, honoring certain holy times and days, that kind of thing. You know, like, um, and so, you know, like, I, I see the 17th century as, as this big shift that we're still living in. It hasn't played itself out. You know, like it hasn't. Um, but, you know, like when Christian missionaries went to other societies, you know, like non-Christian societies throughout the world, they used exactly the same kinds of arguments, you know, like that, you know, to to undermine tradition, you know, like, um, and and it was very effective. You know, um, it's an effective argument because because reason is placed as the arbiter of the of of what is correct and what is not correct. So if you if you if you say, well, I'm mimicking the life of Jesus because he is the Son of God, that's not actually a rational argument. You know, like that's that's an argument of. Um, you could call it a heart-based argument or a um, uh, something something like that. You know, like but uh, but you know, like you could respond with saying, "Well, if somebody you admired walks off a cliff. Are you going to follow them? You know, follow them that way?" No, you must use your reason and see if what Jesus said was reasonable. 
you know, like it, it, it's in, interesting because um, I sent out an email last night saying that uh, one of the themes you might explore is the influence of Parmenides' three rules of thought. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, and that's the which were developed in order to be able to think clearly, not as a way to understand experience, etc. But they've they've been uh, misapplied to emotions and to experience, where they actually don't hold. Your thoughts on this, Stuart? Uh, well, I I appreciate uh, I appreciated the email. There's a book I read that was influential to me that was written by actually a friend of Jim's. It was called The Critique of Patriarchal Reason by a guy named Arthur Evans. And that was the first time I really encountered a critique of Parmenides because what he points out in the book is a, a more allegorical version of what you just said, which is the uh, Parmenides receives the law of the excluded middle in a vision from a goddess. This, it's, it's like completely allegorical and it's completely, it's a revelation uh, that's uh, uh, non-rational and, 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 and that it, it's basically, you know, uh, Evan's point was, if this is the foundation of your logic, you know, the uh, Western man, your, your logic is obviously uh, on a, you know, it's like ink on water. And, 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 but it's, I think to your point, um, it actually, your, your comment helped clarify that, that there are categories of experience for which that rule does not work. And you had a good example of, um, uh, a friend of yours who was, I, I think was at, experiencing both profound joy and loss at the, uh, uh, death of a loved one at the end of a, uh, chronic disease and that that, how can I have both experiences? Well, there's there's lots of things in our experience that permit that kind of fuzziness or that kind of overlap. And the law of the excluded middle is a useful tool for logic, and it and it it, it can give you some very interesting insights and answers. But it's not everything. And if you make it everything, it's a recipe for insanity. So I'm I'm curious as to how how has it become everything for us? Because, uh, I mean, um, Pope Benedict, when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, uh, wrote a paper on, is God rational? Hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah, what, is I, he, what conclusion does he come to? I can't remember. I read the paper because it, 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 he makes a comment about Islam in there, which got him into a certain amount of hot water. So I was curious, but and then I discovered that the paper wasn't about Islam at all. It was about the question: Is God rational, and how does? And I, I read a book by a um, Sufi imam in New York on uh, Islam: A Search for Meaning, and the same problem of um, dealing with the intellect versus emotion that uh, C.S. Lewis. Uh, explored in Till We Have Faces and so forth, this tension between faith and reason, which uh, has been a huge issue in the West. I, and I think Jim's right, from the 17th century, I don't know how much it was before then, 
but it's not a, it's not an issue within these traditions in the same way. Right. And Jim, your thoughts? I mean, what's going on here? Um, what, what's going on with? Well, how 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 have we become so consumed by the uh, worship of reason? I'll put it. I'll, I'll put it in. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I I think it gives people a sense of power and control. You know, like um, I think it feels good to people who. Like if you observe someone who's very skillful in um, in reason and deduction, arguing with someone who is not so skillful, you can see in their posture there's an underlying aggression. You know, like um, yes, yes, definitely. You know, like and uh, um, and uh, the poor person who is not so trained in reason and not so is left in this. You know, like. Uh, sort of pushed into this corner where either they have to give in and you can tell that they don't like it. You know, like uh, you can tell on uh, their facial expression that they don't like being cornered like that. Or they say, uh, you know, F off, you know, like I, you know, like I believe what I believe. And that leads to the increase of irrationalism. You know, like over time, this kind of interaction you know, like the, the person who is very skillful at analysis um, and using logical arguments feels that they've won and that that other person is pathetic. And the person who lost because they're not skillful feels like, you know, well, no, you can't, you can't treat me that way. You know, like, Welcome to American politics. Well, that that's what I'm getting at. But I, I heard Kenneth arguing how did, how did we get here? And I think over time, those kinds of interactions built day by day by day by day, year after year after year after year, until you actually had a culture of irrationalism as kind of paradoxically the logical consequence of um, having reason be everything. But to, to go back, I, I think it's emotionally, it's emotionally satisfying for people to construct a logical argument it's a kind of um, uh, combat. You know, yeah, like, I, I think of it as a kind of hoarding of toilet paper. In light of your comments, Jim, I go back to one of Stuart's questions. What is the ro role of reason in practice? Because um, I think it does have a role. Um, but in mysticism, I don't think, at least not for me anyway, um, reason is a tool, but it is not the only method, it's not the only way to ascertain what is true and meaningful. Well, I think of, of the dyad of great faith and great doubt. For me, reason and great doubt go well together because reason, almost by its very structure, is... Um, uh, provides the tools for calling into question to seeing alternatives to uh, uh, taking something apart. And whereas great faith is the piece that Jim was talking about, where you have to have an inspirational core and you have to have a uh, sort of a vision or an emotional centered response uh, and a higher emotional centered response to 
even pursue uh, practice in any form or because uh, doubt would say, well, what's the point? There's something inspirational. You, you and have the two, to be grave. For our listeners, yeah. this is this is Jim's scoring a point in an argument yeah. long long running. So, so I, would, I would say, from a fourth way from a fourth way perspective, you're saying grace is the third force. <laughs> but 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 you see that I mean that that's so when I say reason is uh, important in spiritual practice. Um, as in mystical positivism, uh, that dynamism is really there. I mean, for me, the mystical is the uh, great faith, the positivism is the great doubt. And the two together are both necessary, and I think they both uh, complement each other. When the two are attacking each other, it, it doesn't work at all, And as Jim was pointing out. Well, I'm very, very glad to hear this. Art I haven't heard you articulate it this way. That the, the, uh, reason and doubt, at least this is what I understand you saying, that reason and doubt need to go together. Are they? Or they are? Yeah, I'm saying well, they're, 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 they're important, mutually complementary. Yeah. It's well, like well, it's no, a no, yes saying, and no, right? Well, well, no, I'm saying faith and doubt go together. Reason and doubt to me are sort of, ah, okay. uh, reason is a Sorry. tool of doubt, or uh, reason is an expression of doubt. Sorry. Ah, reason is an expression of doubt. One of my favorite uh, spiritual books is by Stephen Batchelor on Korean Buddhism, and uh, I think it's called The Faith to Doubt, or yeah. something like that. And I, I really believe the whole book deals with this issue, but I, I can't my mind isn't coming up with a quote, but if people listening to this are interested, I highly recommend that book for this. Yeah, I, I, I'm familiar with that book, and I, I, take, um, I found it a bit uneven, frankly, but the, where he started off in the first paragraph of the book, uh, this is not exactly what he says, it's how I paraphrased it and used it in my own teaching, um, to the effect that in its institutional form, Buddhism has provided very powerful answers to the quest to questions of the spirit. But sometimes the power of the answers overwhelms the stammering voice which is asking the questions. Mm -hmm. And I've made it very clear to students that I worked with that I'm interested in the stammering voice. Mm -hmm. But I want to pick up on what both you and Stuart are saying here in that the, uh, you're saying that reason is, uh, how did you say it, Stuart? Reason I said reason is an expression of doubt. You see, that I, th that I think is wonderful because the reason is most often, I think, used to eliminate doubt. And in eliminating doubt, you eliminate the mystery. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but so I, I, I see very uh, most people employ reason to get so to get rid of doubt so there's everything is clear and that's how it is uh, and I don't think they realize how they are narrowing their whole range of experience in the process. Well, I, I have to agree with you and the um, despite my better instincts. But, 
but I, but but it happens now and then. It happens now and then. So so uh, you know, uh, I think I think you could you can say because of the operation of reason that we have smaller and smaller chunks of reality that we're able to apply it to. I, I like that. That's, yeah. So so I mean that's another way of expressing your brilliant insight. Yeah, well, as we say, a, a broken <laughs> clock is right twice a day. <laughs> well, this is one of Lewis Carroll's, you know, which do you want to talk? Clock that is always wrong or one that's right twice a day? Clock <laughs> <Right. laughs> that's five minutes fast is always wrong. That's right. Um, George, who is, the, who is the author of the Katika pitch? Uh, I can't remember his name. Arthur Evans. Arthur Evans. Yeah, Arthur, Arthur Evans told me a story about he went to graduate school at Columbia University philosophy department and um, and he um, quit before uh, getting his PhD and he wandered through life for, I don't know, four or five years and then he decided that he wanted to go back. And, like, and I think it was more than five years. but. Um, and so he contacted Columbia and said, it, would it still be possible for him to finish his PhD? And they said, well, why don't you come in and, you know, we'll talk about it, you know, like, um, and so he did. And he visited Columbia and he saw this uh, poster on the uh, wall, which was a um, conference on the logic of counterfactuals, you know, like, and <laughs> it, uh, he broke out laughing because the last thing he remembered from leaving when he left five years before was a poster on a conference on the um, logic of counterfactuals, you know, like, and, and they were still, they were still doing this, this kind of whittling away uh, that uh, Rob, Rob referred to, you know, like, and, uh, um, what is his name? Arthur, Arthur, uh, Arthur was a, a synthetic thinker, you know, like he was, he loved to bring history and logic and philosophy and music and even, even auto mechanics. He was a very good auto mechanic, you know, like, and he would, he would bring them all together, you know, like, and um, that, that way of integrating things is, um, it's not encouraged today, you know, like in, in that kind of context. So I thought I would just share that little story about Arthur since he was brought up in the conversation. Okay. I think it. Did he ever finish his PhD? No, he never did. I'm not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, one, one, this topic uh, kind of reminds me of this um, material that I think all of us uh, uh, read that I think Jim and Ken both pointed us to about the use of contradiction and critique as the kind of dominant clubs in intellectual discourse and how it snuffs out or sort of uh, uh, what I would call a more synthetic view, if you use the language that Jim just used, or a an affirmative view, because it's like you take something and then you start to uh, uh, critique it or uh, break it down or to uh, um, you know, assert the contrary. And by doing that, you just sort of stay stuck. You don't move and there isn't, there isn't new creativity. 
I, I agree with you. Um, I, 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 actually, I think the article that we're uh, re referencing here goes further than that, and something that uh, we pointed out that Lakoff um, makes mm -hmm. a very strong point of that is that when you're in critique mode, you have unwittingly limited yourself to the framework in which what you're critiquing developed. You have to conform to the structure of their argument to critique it. In other yeah. words, you're essentially reifying it. Yeah, but, but, but you're limiting yourself. We need to take a short break at the hour. You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with two of our favorite guests, Ken McLeod and Jim Wilson. Ken is the founder and director of unfetteredmind.org and the author of several books, including Wake Up to Your Life, Discovering the Buddhist Path of Attention, and his most recent, A Trackless Path. Jim is a poet and writer. He has published several books on spiritual matters, including On Trusting the Heart, a commentary on a famous poem by the Third Zen Patriarch, and an annotated edition of A Guide to True Peace. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick, joined in the following by co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt, director of Tayu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. We now return to our pre-recorded conversation with two of our favorite guests, Ken McLeod and Jim Wilson. Ken is the founder and director of unfetteredmind.org and the author of several books, including Wake Up to Your Life, Discovering the Buddhist Path of Attention, and his most recent, A Trackless Path. Jim is a poet and writer. He has published several books on spiritual matters, including On Trusting the Heart, a commentary on a famous poem by the Third Zen Patriarch, and an annotated edition of A Guide to True Peace. When you're in critique mode, you have unwittingly limited yourself to the framework in which what you're critiquing developed. You have to conform to the structure of their argument to critique it. In other yeah. words, you're essentially reifying it. Yeah, but, but, but you're limiting yourself, right? Mm -hmm. and, that, and that's why it, 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 you, it, it removes any possibility of synthetic thinking because you can't bring in all these other things because you know, as long as you're trying to just say this is wrong, you, 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 you've confined yourself to a, a very, restricted set of uh, criteria and range. I mean, uh, I think Jim's example of the Catholic Church uh, accepting the Protestant analytical criticism and by doing so, confining themselves then for centuries to analysis, essentially. That's how I understood you, Jim. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And I, this first became clear to me when I developed friendships uh, with Eastern Orthodox um, people, because Eastern Orthodox Christianity did not go that route. And they're very self-aware about that difference. You know, they, they, you know, from their perspective, they regard that as a mistake, and they can articulate it, you know, like very, very clearly. And, and that tradition, to most accounts, still preserves something of a mystery that 
you don't see represented in a lot of the Western um, Christian and Catholic. I mean, it's not that it's not there entirely, but it's not it's not as commonly available. It's not as explicit. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, and I look at uh, well, how Buddhism is de- uh, developing uh, in, in the West, and I see the same sorts of problems. That there's there's seems to be. I'm not sure whether it's a uh, conscious agenda, uh, maybe, uh, but every effort to eliminate uh, anything that isn't rational. Right. Some are some are explicit about that, you know, like they. And not just to eliminate the non-rational, but to celebrate the rational. In other words, the Buddha was, uh, you know, uh, uh, an exemplar of rationality 2,500 years ago. I mean, that's the sort of stuff I've read. Yeah, uh, and you know, and other people saying that Buddhism is a, a science of the mind and so forth, which it isn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, I mean, we, we have a difficulty because as, as Jim has alluded to, you have this, uh, under this influence, then anything which you do, which is not, can't, cannot be justified rationally is regarded as irrational. And uh, uh, but th- that again is back to the uh, Parmenides excluded middle, and it also has to do with the paper that we shared about the difference between contradiction and I know you don't like to use the word contraries, but I'm using the word contraries in a uh, colloquial sense, not in a um, yeah. The term he used is contrariety, right? Uh, right. Yeah, but which actually doesn't mean anything different from contradiction. So I don't. But uh, okay. But, but the point. But even though I disagree with his terminology, I think the points that he was making were very, very uh, solid and and important. Um, and as I said in the email, that uh, you, you critique is a response to, but you can't build anything from which opens up spectrum models and evolutionary or developmental models and the, the possibility mm-hmm. of building on things rather than just saying that they're wrong. Right. So I, I have a question for, for you learned philosophers because I am not um, <laughs> well-versed in, uh, in the I, Western tradition of philosophy. This is Dr. Schmidt speaking. <laughs> yes, but I, don't, I have not read. So one of the things I like... One of the things I particularly liked about this article, I mean, he frames a sort of, uh, I don't know, almost eternal argument between, and he frames it between Plato and Aristotle. I've never read any Aristotle. And yet, um, the thing I liked, really liked about, well, one thing I really liked about the article was that there's, uh, he concludes the, the piece by going through a list of texts Mm-hmm. running through the last couple thousand years where he describes what he's describing as this Aristotelian, I guess, um, perspective in contrast to a Platonic perspective and describes briefly why he thinks that's the case, why that's in evidence in each of these texts. Some of the, some of the pieces I've read, those pieces I've read, but mostly, mostly I haven't. 
And and so I, so so my question um, to you folks, more practiced in reading these these texts, is is the contrast between Aristotelian the, the Aristotelian point of view and Platonic point of view fairly um, expressed in the article um, that is about this contrast that he's drawing between um, contrariety and um, uh, and contradiction and contradiction, right? Well, I I don't think he I don't think the author has Plato right, you know, like but. But I, I cut it, I cut him a lot of slack because he's, um, presenting Plato as Plato is commonly presented these days, you know, like, but, but the reason I, I don't agree with his interpretation of Plato is that Plato doesn't actually reject the past. He doesn't, he, like, he doesn't say Heraclitus is wrong. He doesn't say Parmenides is wrong. He has an entire dialogue where he uh, that is dedicated to Parmenides, um, and it's he's um, interacting with Parmenides, and he quotes Heraclitus. I'm I'm picking those two because they're often considered to be the extremes of pre-Socratic philosophy, where Heraclitus believed everything was flux and constantly changing, and Parmenides believed that. Um, things don't actually change. So, you know, like, um, that's a, a, a terrible summary, but, but Plato, I can't recall a, anywhere in the dialogues where he says, my predecessors were wrong, you know, like, and I'm, I'm going to tell you what's right. And in a lot of ways, and this is a theme of a number of Platonic scholars, Plato's effort was to reconcile all of the previous thinkers into a synthesis. I mean, you can look at Plato that way. Um, so, uh, for example, he accepted the Heraclitian view that everything is constantly changing and in flux in the sensory world. He accepted Parmenides' view that there's also an unchanging aspect to existence. You know, like, and to me, uh, uh, reading Plato from that perspective he falls. He doesn't fall within the either-or contradictory um, model uh, that uh, the author whose name I forget, you know, like uh, puts forth. Uh, Aristotle, um, the author talks about the particular texts that Aristotle that were preserved in medieval Europe, you know, like and based on those texts, I think he's right about Aristotle and Aristotle's influence on reason and the uh, cultivation of reason. But if you look at Aristotle's complete corpus, he also um, uh, says a lot of other things, like uh, particularly in his biological works, you know, like, uh, and in his teleology. But putting that aside, I really, really like the article. I think, I think it really has touched on something uh, of, of significance in our culture at this time, this it's falling into um, uh, critique and contradiction, and uh, and that that seems to be the the fallback position that uh, that people have these days, and it's it's very hard to get around that. And what I really admire about the author is the author gives 
specific examples like Rob mentioned, you know, like say Boethius's uh, consolation of philosophy, you know, like that he act, the author actually says that the arguments of uh, the, the specific arguments that Boethius puts forth are um, terrible, but that, the, but that that isn't the point of the work. The point of the work is to offer consolation. Uh, and that and that Boethius is successful at that, you know. Like, and I thought that was a very acute observation, you know. Like, uh, and um, and kind of an inspiring one. Yeah, just just for listeners, we're talking about an article from ArtForum.com. The title is "Shockwaves: A Syllabus for the End Times." Although it doesn't have an author's name, I think it's like a collection of. Uh, um, yeah, I, I'm just looking at the article, and I can't. Uh, I, this I think is his blog, and I can't find the author's name. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't find it either, I, and and I can't read the full title uh, on the radio, but <laughs> <laughs> it's that it's that kind of piece. But but I'll, I'll put a link on the uh, podcast, you know, for um, anyone who's interested in that. Uh, you know, this uh, one of the questions that um, we were talking about in terms of contradiction and uh, uh, the, uh, you know, the, this notion of like uh, either critiquing as opposed to building on something. It occurred to me when I was thinking about this and we were writing back and forth that um, I was asking myself about the doctrine of non-self and particularly, you know, the, some of the methodologies like neti neti or self-inquiry where you look, you sort of ask a question, is this myself or, you know, or is myself here? And then you say, no, it's not. And I was wondering how that, that dialogue actually fits with this uh, notion. Is that a form of contradiction? Uh, and does the very, yeah. does the very, uh, uh, practice itself subtly reify uh, a self because you're negating a self, therefore you're reifying a self? Um, not in my view. Uh, I, the example that I like to give here is the original version of uh, 12 Angry Men with Henry Fonda. Hmm. Uh, it's, uh, in that movie, uh, there's 12 men are in the jury uh, are determining their decision on uh, the trial. This young guy who's meant to have killed somebody. And everybody thinks it's a slam dunk, except Henry Bonda's character says, well, can't we talk about it a bit? You know, I, I have some questions. And everybody's really irritated with them because they want to get out back to their lives as quickly as possible. And as the movie progresses, one by one, they change their positions. But what happens is how they change their positions is what's really important. Henry Fonda's character asks them questions. But he only asks them questions to the point that they begin to question their own situ uh, their own opinion, mm. and that and he stops right there every time. He doesn't go any further. And 
And I think this is a wonderful example of how insight and compassion operate in practice. That it isn't about defeating or refuting mm. uh, the other opinion. It is like, okay, but you said this, and wouldn't that mean this? And, and, and the person comes to him, hmm, I don't know. And in that don't know, and Jim can speak to this very eloquently, I'm sure, there's an opening. Mm -hmm. And you see other possibilities. And that, to me, is the most constructive role of reason. So it's a asking a question. It's more like asking an open-ended question uh, that undermines the certainty of uh, uh, a uh, an assertion of reason. Exactly, yeah. And, and, and in that moment where reason can no longer function, I think we can say, that's when the vertical dimension opens up. And that, you see, and that is something that we, we have lost almost all expression of in our culture. That makes. I'm not. Go ahead, Jim. Um, I'm thinking. Uh, who wrote uh, the Mammoth of Crowds? Um, Douglas Murray. Douglas Murray. I saw an interview uh, with him recently about our current uh, situation, and he was inter interviewed by an Australian, and <clears throat> and the interviewer said, "Well, you know." Uh, when we get through this, it's likely to be, you know, this way and that way. And Murray made a very interesting observation, and he said, I, I don't know that that's true. He said, I've heard a lot of people say that this situation will mean X or it will mean Y. And he said, he said I think we're walking into the fog. I think we, do, I think we don't know what, uh, you know, what will happen. And he, and he said... And then he said, that's really uncomfortable. You know, like, and, and there's, he said, there's so much discomfort. He said, I think people are trying to find a footing on what the result of our situation will be. You know, like, and, but, but he said, actually, he, you know, like he said to the interview, he said, I don't know what the result of, of this will be. And he kind of smiled, you know, like uh, the way he does, you know, like, uh, um, and, so there, uh, and of course my teacher is Sun's name, the Korean teacher, that was his primary teaching tool was to uh, cultivate don't know mind, uh, so. Well, doesn't this, this bring us back to the original question about mortality that Ken asked? Because- um, And the role of practice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, 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 I mean, you know, because Gertrude, we don't know what will happen because we don't know what will happen and we don't know how to, how to configure a relationship to mortality, mm -hmm. given the tools that we're exposed to in our culture generally. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things I think, that, I think you know, what? I'm sorry, go ahead. I think that's very well put, Rob. Yeah. Thank you. That, I mean, I, I, I just want to expand it, I, I, getting back to the cross-cultural perspective that you were also talking about earlier, Ken, it seems to me that there are examples of cultures that we know of that 
had a different relationship to tools to have a relationship with mortality. Yes. And, and, and one of the things to, to resurrect also Jim's point about this is that reason seems reason gets deployed by Westerners going into these other, into other cultural contexts. It gets deployed in order to undermine, or, or it has the effect at least of undermining um, those relationships and the way they're configured and inserting this, this so-called rational view, viewpoint and people become unmoored. As, it inserts the rational viewpoint as if this is all humans are capable of. Mm. Right. Nicely said, yeah, that's right. And, and this speaks, I think, very much to the fourth wave that you, uh, you two have studied, because I think this was Gurdjieff's whole point, that the, the human being is capable of more than just reason. Oh, absolutely. In fact, uh, you know, um, I'm, I'm, I'm hesitating here for a moment because, because uh, Jim has made the point as a former Buddhist, um, although I don't know that you can take all of the Buddhism out of the boy. You can't, you can't take the Dharma out of the, you can take the boy out of the Dharma, but you can't take the Dharma right, out of the boy. There I am, I'm sitting in my inner Zendo. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> when you, when, when you're, when you're doing your Quaker meditation. Yeah. So, or a Shinto uh, offering. Or Shinto, or offering Shinto, or whatever. Uh, but, oh my but, God, what will listeners think of me? You know, like Buddhism. Quakers, Shinto, but there it is. <laughs> there it is. That's the reality. And we haven't gotten into haiku at all, even. <laughs> but but the but but it's this um, it's this point about where the center of gravity um, rests in our relationship to mortality and. And I think that the reason that the reason that reason gets deployed is because people don't have a um, they don't have the tools that perhaps centuries ago were available in the West, and that more recently perhaps were and maybe even still in some cultural contexts today exist to find a center of gravity with relation to mortality and its obverse, its obverse being this moment that we're in. So, so it's, um, I, I, I actually disagree with you slightly. I don't okay. Think, I don't Go think the obverse is this moment. I think the, it is that you don't exclude mortality and the presence of mortality from your experience of life. I take, I take your point because that, that, that only uh, brings us back to the article that we've been described, the authorless article we've been describing. Um, yes, yeah, yeah. Or, uh, because, because the point there is not to exclude and to, in fact, include, include and, and, and nope. hold, hold simultaneously. So, yeah. And, and to build on rather than to refute. That's one of the things I like. So mm -hmm. just as a footnote, since we mentioned Gurdjieff, that uh, in his 
masterwork all and everything Beelzebub sails to his grandson at the very end there's a a scene where Beelzebub is asking a question directly of uh, uh, his endless endlessness or our endless endlessness the absolute What's and the uh, the our endless endlessness oh endless yeah okay. endless yeah and the question is about what could actually what factors could actually help mankind uh you know get over this chronic egoism and the response was that if if humans could have implanted into them an organ which would constantly remind them of their mortality that that would be that would cause the factors that give rise to the egoism to ultimately dissolve well, this is so interesting because as you know i'm writing this book on vajrayana and <clears throat> I have been stuck for quite a while on how to uh, approach deity practice, which is one of the central practices in Vajrayana. And uh, I found a way into it eventually by using a conversation I had in England between the two three-year retreats. I'd gone to visit my aunt who was a doctor because I needed some medical treatment. And while I was there, she invited a well-known child psychiatrist and his wife over for dinner. Uh, and we were having a very nice dinner until he asked, so what did you actually study in the three-year retreat? And I took a moment and I thought, well, we actually studied how to die. Mm-hmm. And his wife said, that's a conversation stopper. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and no what, doubt it was. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it was a conversation stopper because she named it as a conversation stopper. Yeah. Right. Yes, of course. Uh, and th- there was a very uncomfortable silence for several minutes. Nobody knew what to say. I mean, like. But because you d- it's not a subject you talk about in polite society in the West, is it? except in extraordinary circumstances. It, what's coming to my mind is Socrates is famously known for saying that uh, philosophy is uh, learning how to die before you die. So, yes. uh, and uh, that's not taught in philosophy departments today. You know, like that, that, that's the, that that's the central task of um, mm-hmm. philosophy. You know, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so yes, I, I, I think that the, it's something that my teacher just drummed into us from the moment I met him and he just hammered and hammered and hammered at how important it was to come to terms with your mortality. Uh, so I think he felt it was the same with respect to uh, spiritual practices. Uh, Socrates did with philosophy, except I think Socrates' philosophy is probably more akin to our spiritual practice me absolutely yeah well you know it's a relationship to the dying uh has is a is a central part of our of of our stewards in my practice and Mm -hmm. um and i have to say being present throughout the process of our teacher dying i mean physically present changed something in I knew at the time it was changing something in me I still feel whatever that was 
in me. And um, I, I don't know how to articulate it that, you know, it's not a, it's like, I don't think I used to think of mortality with a lot of fear because I didn't think about it much. And now there's a different relationship in the sense of, well, if it was good enough for my teacher, it'll be good enough for me. Yeah, in a way this brings us back to Jim's comment about uh, Douglas Murray not knowing. It may be that one of the effects of this pandemic is that it brings people in touch with death uh, and it brings the culture in touch with death in a way that it hasn't for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. And even though there is a tragic loss of life and suffering and pain involved, uh, there may be some good coming out of actually being more in touch with the human condition as it is rather than as we try to construct it. Well, that's, a, that's a hopeful view. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I probably am what I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm cynical. I just, um, uh, expect that, uh, when things begin to subside, that, uh, we'll very quickly do everything we can to forget it as a society. Um, <laughs> very rarely call the glasses half full. <laughs> <laughs> but at least the market will be strong. <laughs> Hey, I, I, there's one question that uh, we had sort of talked about in an email that uh, is arising for me, partly because you had raised this question in a um, an exchange we had uh, about ethics, and the question you um, raised was of, of you know the, what's the ethics in terms of sending around articles about uh, COVID-19 when they're Sh sharing, information yeah, sharing information that is unvetted. That's, shall we that's say. unvetted. Uh, but, and then in the background, there's this other conversation we're having about what is the, what is that? What is the ethics uh, uh, when you're uh, from the perspective of non-self or uh, from a perspective where the self is not, is seen to be uh the self as we normally understand it is seen to be illusory or at least ever changing. And then what is, what does ethics mean in that, in that context? And so I'm, these are the poles of my exploration of ethics right now. So I just wanted to open this up um, because it's a, it's an important question. You know, the, the first question is a question for me is like, if I write anything, if I put anything on Facebook or send emails out or post something, or even this radio conversation, what is the ethical response to the situation? And then the broader question is, as a spiritual practitioner, uh, that, uh, in a, in a practice that, among other things, uh, helps one see the nullity of the self, what is, uh, what is an ethical act? Okay. Jim, do you want to go first? Or do you want me to go first? Uh, too much is, uh, churning through my mind at the moment, so please go. Okay. Uh, I think for me, the I, I think I'll take the second question first. Uh, 
you know, ethics in relationship to non-self. Uh, I see non-self um, as a practice, I suppose. And uh, so what ethics for me then is how do I live my life in a way that supports that practice? And it, that boils down to uh, responding to what arises. Uh, and a friend of mine uh, formulated it in, in this way, uh, showing up to what is actually happening so that you eliminate that kind of denial, opening to it to the best of your ability so you're including as much as possible and that means not only including everything outside but also including everything that's arising inside. And when you do that, uh, I find that you can become aware of imbalance or there may be and there may be more than one imbalance and then the effort is to address the uh, uh an imbalance and which imbalance you address depends on all kinds of situations so i don't think there's any kind of uh, or factors any kind of rule uh, that can be provided there except uh, in keeping with my Buddhist training, it's probably others first. Uh, and then whatever you do, it may or may not be the right thing because we never actually know, uh, you receive the result and then you go through the same process again. And to the extent possible, that, that is actually how I try to put the ethics of non-self into action. So back to you, Jim. Uh, what you said, um, um, I, dis I distill into a posture of acceptance. You're like, you accept the world as it is. You're like, and it, uh, a, a recurrent inspiration for me is the Tao Te Ching on this. Like, yeah. Because, yeah. And I mean the whole of the Tao Te Ching because yeah. uh, there are um, passages in the Tao Te Ching where the world is uh, depicted as a nourishing valley and then there are uh, uh, passages in the Tao Te Ching where he says uh, the cosmos treats all beings like straw dogs. You know, like, and and both and this is a really good example of the um, that paper that we've been talking about because uh, Lao Tzu accepts that this is the actual actuality of the world. You know, like, and both both are in operation. Both are in operation. It's not, yeah. Uh, it, he, the Tao Te Ching is not based on an either or view of existence. You know, like and um, so um, so in, in my own spiritual practice, 
I've grown into acceptance gradually, you know, like, um, and there's, whenever I take a step in that direction, uh, there is an increased sense, even a bodily sense of peace or tranquility, you know, like, uh, that is part of that. So the, so the, 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 the image that arose when Ken was talking and was reiterated for me, uh, listening to you, Jim, on this point is the image of, of a sailor tacking back yeah. and forth with the wind. That's the having a dirt, having, Madame Guayan uses that image. Oh, nice. So oh. it's, so, um, so in other words, there's a direction. Uh, a sense of direction to travel, but conditions vary mm-hmm. from moment and so, to moment. And the, and the direction changes accordingly. Right, so, exactly. So Jim mentioned something that's uh, interesting because, Ken, you've, you've talked about this as part of uh, a, a fruit of practice or, a, uh, or a, a consequence of practice, which is an abiding sense of peace. And acceptance, acceptance to what is, which doesn't necessarily, it's not the same as rolling over to what is, but uh, the acceptance of what is seems to be, as we take those steps, it does seem to correlate with a sense of peace. How did Desjardins, how did Desjardins put it? It, it is what it is and it is yeah, right. otherwise. Was that his mm-hmm. phrase? That's right. Yeah. See, what, when Jim was talking, it reminded me of something that I've observed um, a number of times with students who are in very difficult situations. And uh, when they came to me, they they were trying to get out of the difficulty. Mm-hmm. And, and some of these were very painful and very difficult situations. And, uh, and, and in more than one occasion, my role was, or what I chose to do, I don't know, the imbalance that I was trying to address, I suppose, is there is no, uh, there is no good solution here. There's absolutely no good solution or, or something to the, that effect. So, so I was taking away from them the idea that there's somehow they could make this difficult situation into something other than it was. Mm. Right. And what I observed time and time again and, and, and not doing that in an attacking way, but in, in, mm-hmm. in an understanding way. And that's, that's actually quite important. But the, what I observe time and again is when a person, and I've seen this in myself, when a person is able to understand and accept how things are, even if they're very bad, mind and body relax. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this has been a uh, useful discussion for just this point has been a useful discussion for me because um, I don't know if we've mentioned it in the in this conversation yet, but during our current shelter in place order, I have been keeping our spiritual bookstore and tea shop open for limited hours in order to make tea available. And people can come come in and they come in and buy incense and candles, quite a bit of incense and candles, by the way, <laughs> as well as tea and books. But, um, uh, I, uh, you know, in the last week, I've had two people whose 
who, whose opinions I have reason to have to, to not dismiss readily. Senior spiritual practitioners. Senior spiritual practitioners um, have written to me, urging me to close the store entirely and and stop, you know, uh, making the store open even for a limited time uh, on many days of the week. And and I I can't I don't want to dismiss what they say I'm I'm I have to let it I mean I feel that my practice is to let that in let it do what it will and then respond and and you know this morning I woke up from from a from a dream that had elements of this quandary that I, that I'm I'm facing and it was not a pleasant it was not a pleasant feeling in my body and mind when I when I woke up from it. So there's that. And then there's this reminder that you guys have just offered me that, oh, of course, I have to find um, a place where my body relaxes. And um, and how do I how do I do that? Well, there's no prescription, there's no formula, but it is in being with the question that I will find whatever answer today, tomorrow arises. But the body relaxing is an, indica- is an indication of acceptance. It's yes. not, it isn't the means to accept. No, 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 I didn't mean to imply It's a measure there. Yeah, right? actually, I, um, in our fourth way, uh, three brain kind of language, it's, uh, it's acceptance uh, reified in the body. Yeah. But, 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 uh, but uh, to return to the fourth way language, what, what you were suggesting or, or, or the interpretation you were cautioning against was what we would call in the fourth way self-calming. And that's not yeah, that's yeah. not what I'm talking about. All right, I just want to make that clear because people listen. It's, a, it's an important point for people for listeners. Absolutely, absolutely. That's so, ethical. So if our ethical, if uh, ethics then is tied into the sense of acceptance, um, I'm on it. Would it be uh, uh, too much to? Say that uh, compassion then is is in a way uh, taking that acceptance to another, like where we can be present to another and uh, the suffering of another in the same way that we learn to be present to the suffering of ourselves. Hmm. I'm not quite sure what you're asking there, Stuart. Well, when I ask, you know, there's there's. Uh, uh, What's the nature of compassion? Yeah, there's, there's, there's ethics is sort of, uh, in a way, how do I act and how are my actions, in a sense, consistent with my practice? The, it seems like the way we're talking about this, uh, ethics, you know, if I take steps and if I'm present to what the situation as it is and respond spontaneously to the contours of the situation in order to, as it were, create a kind of a balance, or a harmony that is uh, certainly experienced at one level as a, a an internal sense of peace is compassion the taking of that to another that same that same principle to another yeah compassion is 
the wish that others experience the same kind of peace. And then the, it, it, the ethics would be the actions consistent with the uh, realization of that wish. Yes, uh, which means that uh, in some cases, where it is likely that the person can actually meet it, right. you, you help them be in the condition of their life. Yeah, and, for, and I think for me, uh, the way this resolved and this, uh, this whole question about ethics and uh, sending emails out about uh, COVID-19 is that, uh, to your point, you know, I really don't know uh, whether it's big or small, uh, if it's a pandemic of biblical proportions or whether it's going to burn off in the summer. I, I, I really don't know. And I don't know that anyone really knows that. But what I do know is uh, what it means to be present to what is. Mm-hmm. And, and so my realization was, what if I'm going to communicate anything, it should be uh, on that point, that, that I can share that and that will be consistent with the ethics that I strive to um, uh, embody. And anything else is, is really good, strays from that because any narrative I throw out is going to make some people feel good and some people feel bad because of, uh, and it really, and it, and it's really pointing, uh, it's, it's taking the finger off of the moon and pointing it down in the, you know, the ditch or something like that. Uh, I think part of the reason I said at the beginning of our conversation that I find the situation very disorienting. I think part of the reason why I find it disorienting is that um, I, I think we're all having to act without knowing what the consequences of our actions are going to be. Yeah. Uh, and, and so from an ethical point of view, it's, it's disorienting because, you know, the ground is shifting under our feet. Yes. And, uh, you know, and I'm reminded of one of Richard Rorty's essays, uh, You Cannot Make a Mistake, I think it was the title, in that uh, there have been people through the course of history who have brought their full intellect, spiritual capability, understanding, experience, etc., to bear on a situation, and they've made a, de- a determination and a decision, and it turned out to be the wrong one, historically speaking. And they were judged as bad for that, because society does not judge you on your motivation or your action, but on the results of the action. And we cannot know at this point. Right. Right. Yeah, and that's, that's the, the issue that, like, uh, the feedback, you know, some people have given to Rob about keeping the bookstore open is, you know, independent of his own health. It's, it's like, um, uh, one went so far as to re- report the, the, the anecdotes that, um, uh, the SARS-CoV-2 will hang on the walls and, you know, stay present on things. And, you know, so you really can't know that, you know, if you're staying and the ceilings open, and the walls that, and, that and we aren't just becoming floor. a vector, um, would that our store and, had so many customers that we could be a vector. Well, that's, a, that's a different <laughs> issue. <laughs> well, but you want, be careful what you wish Exactly. But, but, that's, but that's what was when, when I said earlier that, you know, I woke up from a dream where, I mean, that was the, that was the issue. It wasn't about my safety. It was about, yeah. oh, this could be a possible way for others to be harmed, how can I accept responsibility for that? 
That's exactly right. Right, and that, and that's the uh, but that's the heavy stick of uncertainty because it's uh, every action you, you we take uh, creates that danger in probabilities probably even higher than the uh, uh, transmission of COVID nineteen. Every time I get in a car and drive, there's the possibility that I'm going to hit someone. Becomes- well, the possibility that you'll end up in hospital and get contract COVID ID nineteen there. Right. It's a it's it's a hard one. We had the same issue with the, the our radio station. Uh, we chose to keep the studio open and arm it with lots of uh, uh, disinfectants and things like that, and and encourage people to do their shows remotely if they're able to. But our bookstore, because we sell tea, our radio station are all explicitly exempted under the shelter-in-place orders for businesses, and so we are conforming to the law. Uh, and but it's the spirit of the law that, of course, matters but, but we for can, what but, we're talking about. But here. we construe that uh, you know uh, making tea available uh, to customers is a useful thing. It's it, you could argue, well, you don't need to. They should go to the supermarket. And depending on the supermarket you go to, some supermarkets are forcing you to put plastic gloves on, and some supermarkets it's kind of like business as usual. Yeah, and once you start trying to trace out all of the possible ramifications, you just end up in a rat's nest. Right. And that's, and that's the thing. It, 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 but that's but fear can do that. And yes. uh, contraction can do that. Because the safest thing to do would be to stay in and be completely isolated. But okay. that's, but, you know, if I, if I but the treated, safest thing to do is not always the right thing. To well, do. I mean, it, it's, kind, it's kind of exactly. like agoraphobia exactly. or something like that. You know, it's like uh, there are people who are terrified about going out of their house. And and I mean, the safest know. thing for the doctors to do is not treat people. Well, exactly. Exactly. Not compare yeah. store to medical. But the, the thing is that if you if you set up these absolutes, you get you get trapped by them. Which is why, in what I was describing, my own approach is you open to the situation, and this sounds exactly like what you're doing, Rob. Uh, you open to the situation, every aspect of it that you can, discern the imbalance, right, and address it in whatever way is available to you. And, and what is available to you may be very, very different from what is available to another person. So and and it, ch- it can change over time, too. Exactly, yeah. And you may reach a point and say, okay, no, we need to close the store now. Right, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's what I've been looking at today, you know, in, in, you know when, when it comes up in my mind, yeah. and feeling into that. Yeah, because it's not, it, there's not a lot of traffic, there's not a lot of business, so there's some business, but... Um, uh, it doesn't. But you're not you're not keeping it open for the business. Right. <laughs> if, if if that were the reason, I would have closed it uh, almost immediately, because Jim, there is no business. Jim, your thoughts on this? Uh, I'm uh, very impressed uh, with uh, Rob's uh, process here. You know, like it's um, but I I go back to uh, this overriding feeling that people don't know what is um, I mean we don't know what the future will bring and there are even songs that have that um, you know that phrase in them you know like but this particular 
event is um, making that very strongly felt in ways that people find uncomfortable. I mean, I find it uncomfortable. You know, like you said, disorienting. You know, like and and so who knows what will come out? People, I don't think people can sustain disorientation for very long. You know, like mm-hmm. and so I, I think there will be some kind of resolution. But I have I have no idea what that will be, you know. Like, um, yeah, the, that's I'm not sure it's a resolution. I think people collapse or grasp at something and and make that their new order. Right. Yeah. Well, or or to the point, certainly in American society, um, uh, as we said, you know, it, it's a society that is thoroughly unprepared for the unexpected, but then can respond uh, 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 quite impressively once once the unexpected becomes, you know, what is. Reality, yes. Yeah, it becomes reality. And so uh, we we may we may see that. We may see that played out a little. It's certainly the case that uh, uh, there are various governors around the country that are starting to look a whole lot more presidential than uh, uh, the current a cast of characters uh, uh, and and that may really change politics in the future. Uh, I think there's a very good possibility that uh, uh, here in California, clearly in New York, uh, I think also a couple of other places, I thought, I, I, but I don't know what's happening in Colorado. Uh, yeah, I don't know either. I know uh, Michigan seems to, you know, there's there's somebody stepping up there, yes. Yeah, and 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 it's also just an interesting time where um, one of the really interesting things about this current period is that for the first time in a while, um, the narrative you buy into has consequences, and 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 that's a, you know, yeah. we've we've talked about this before. You know that the the luxury of of an America that can have some incredibly different narratives and and everything just kind of function well uh doesn't doesn't hold up under a crisis and now and now like the the choices that you make and the narrative the things you choose to believe uh uh, and the things you choose to promote will have consequences see in a strange way america is functioning exactly as it was designed to do that is the states were all meant to be labs Mm. Take different approaches and see which one worked out, mm-hmm. uh, and then others, the states would adopt it. In the same way, I think it's also helpful for us to keep in mind that, from a ecological perspective, perhaps mm-hmm. nature is functioning exactly as she intends to do. Too many people in the world, overcrowding of any population, regard you know, it doesn't have to be people. Become susceptible to disease. Well, the, the um, expression that I've seen in a couple of places that uh, uh, COVID nineteen is nature uh, telling us all to go to our rooms <laughs> <laughs> because we've been misbehaving. Right. Is uh, but do you know what the millennials call it? Yeah. Oh yes, uh, boomer, uh, doomer. boomer doomer. Boomer doomer, yeah. Boomer remover. Boomer remover. There we go. All right. Well, on that happy note, we are very. 
I think it's, I think it's we've, we've, I, 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 we've just removed ourselves. Yes, we, we have, a, a good thing that we are uh, uh, healthily confronting our mortality. <laughs> uh, this, 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 I appreciate it. A, a delight to talk with all three of you. I, yeah, I, 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 I appreciate it. And uh, my thanks, thanks, gentlemen. Thank you, and my gratitude to Zoom for making this all possible. Exactly. Uh, you have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with two of our favorite guests, Ken McLeod and Jim Wilson. Ken is the founder and director of unfetteredmind.org and the author of several books, including Wake Up to Your Life, Discovering the Buddhist Path of Attention, and his most recent book, A Trackless Path. Jim is a poet and writer. He has published several books on spiritual matters, including On Trusting the Heart, a commentary on a famous poem by the third Zen patriarch, and an annotated edition of A Guide to True Peace. Next week on The Mystical Positivist, we feature a live telephone conversation with Red Hawk about his latest book from Home Press called The Way of the Wise Woman, Poems by Red Hawk. Red Hawk was the Hodder Fellow at Princeton University from 92 to 93 and currently a tenured professor of English at the University of Arkansas, Monticello. He is the author of 10 previous books. His book, Self-Observation, has been published in 11 languages. His poetry has been published in The Atlantic, Poetry, and Kenyan Review and other journals. He has been a member of a Gurdjieff group for 36 years, a student of Mr. Lee Lazowick for 22 years, a disciple of Master Osho Rajneesh for 16 years prior, and always a devotee of the great spiritual master Yogi Ramsarat Kumar. In this compilation of 58 short ten-line poems, Red Hawk skillfully describes those qualities of heart, mind, and action that characterize the awakening of the feminine within the human person. As the feminine is awakened in both man and woman, the mother spirit emerges in each one, highlighted by a display of nurturing, kindness, gentleness, generosity, cooperation, and forgiveness of self and others. The Way of the Wise Woman is a catalog of such feminine virtues and behaviors and a series of contemplations to be studied, prayed, and enjoyed for their poetic beauty. As a training manual of sorts, the poems are far from sweet whisperings, however, the feminine, as the poet proclaims, is also fierce, strong, ruthlessly honest, and con confrontative as well as supportive. This collection may well serve to guide the seeker in self-examination, as the poems encourage a refined vision of what is and what is possible, and a growing sense of the presence and attention needed to enter the halls of wisdom. Red Hawk writes from long personal study and experience. His years of discipleship within religious schools of esoteric knowledge allows him to share what has been gained and lost from following a path. The inner struggles of this type of work on self are rendered with raw precision while being beautifully delineated in these poems. Any reader will benefit from the fruits and understanding the poet has gained from these struggles. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. Join us again next Saturday. <laughs>